Clap, clap your hands and stomp your feet. You're listening. You're listening to the Clap Your Hands podcast, hosted by Elliot Shore Parks and Kyle Newbeck. Here they come. What's going on, everybody? This is the Clap Your Hands podcast, brought to you by Odyssey Sports, brought to you by 94 WIP. I am Elliot Shore Parks, here with the one, the only. The maybe second best basketball knowledge guy on the pod now that you're oh my it. god uh kyle newbeck what's up buddy how you doing i'm hanging in man just uh pondering whether the sixers are going to win the eastern conference and <laughs> looking at another long win streak that they're on it's just a, a crazy world that we live in that the sixers are a somewhat trustworthy team well, what's so wild about them is, uh, so this past weekend, obviously, uh, the big news in the basketball world was the, you know, the March Madness tournament. And to be honest, I'm not really a big college basketball fan. I just don't really enjoy watching it. And I, I do have a, a good hypothetical for you. But what what's uh, interesting about it is the whole world is paying attention to that. And meanwhile, the Sixers are just taking care of business. They win by 20 one night. They win by, I think it was almost 40 the other game. Uh, maybe that was Friday night. Like, they just know, like, I don't even say they know how to win because we, we've discussed that, but they just have made it routine, flat-out routine. Every game they play, even if I'm, you know, not watching or if I'm going to rewatch on a replay and I check in, I'm, like, surprised to see if they're losing. When I open the score app to see if they are up, like they're always winning. It's pretty impressive how they've been able just to get uh, get rolling like this. I just think the Saturday game in Indiana is sort of the best example of that, where you're on the second half of back-to-back on the road, the end of this mini road trip, and James Harden sits, P.J. Tucker sits. You have all these built-in excuses to yeah. turn in a terrible performance, and they just absolutely destroyed Indiana on offense. And, you know, I think a lot of that is about Joel Embiid's evolution as a player. Indiana threw the kitchen sink at him. They tried to double team him. They double teamed him before he even got the ball. They triple teamed him. Then they played single coverage. They played zone. They did all kinds of stuff. And whatever they threw at him, Joel figured out what to do, whether it was, you know, spraying passes around the perimeter, whether it's going one-on-one with Miles Turner. And, when your best player reaches that level, everything else sort of falls into place around him. Like I, I don't think a lot of guys on the team had their their best games, but because Joel is so good, those guys only have to play okay, and then they just waltz to you know a twenty plus point victory or a twenty point victory. Obviously, it helps to get the best version of Tyrese, which is what they've been getting lately. But to be able to stack up easy wins like that and and get these victories where you know Joel's only playing three quarters of back-to-back games still getting his numbers and they're getting the best of both worlds right like he can continue to pad the stats and help his MVP case but they're also not overextending him and they're getting these wins like right now this is about as good as it gets for uh Sixers basketball so what do you think is is clicking with them? I saw in, in an article you wrote, you were like, these guys are just playing great right now. Like everything is rolling for them. I agree that getting the best version of Joel is obviously helping. I did love that quote from Joel where he said uh, something like, you know, I play with Harden so I don't have to be uh, an assist guy, kind of like a nice little subliminal shot at, uh, at Jokic. But 
what do you think is turned around that i mean they're they're eight game winning streak they're something like 13 and two in their last 15 games like i said they've made winning routine outside of just the Embiid thing do you feel like this is now the result of because we talked about it at, at the beginning of the uh like when we first started the pod how they didn't get a lot of reps together. Now they've had almost a full season. They've had a prolonged stretch of health where Embiid, Harden, you know, knock on wood, Maxi, all these guys are just playing. I can't remember the last guy that missed a significant stretch with injury. What do you think? Is it that, or, or why do you think they've been able to play so well recently? Yeah, I mean, I think it's you're seeing the the fruits of their labor, so to speak. Like we are at a point now where James has been here over a over a full year. So they had tons of reps with him and Joel as the main two guys. And I think too, throughout the season, they've tinkered with the rotation. Obviously the big one was Tyrese moving to the bench and then back to the starting lineup. And they tried these different combinations, different lineups. And it just seems like they've now settled into a a rotation and a pattern that works. Like when they're fully healthy, it's the starting five, Melton is one of your first guys off the bench. Paul Reed is almost always going to be the backup center. You bring in McDaniels and Niang as your bench guys. And Shake Milton is, you know, sort of the the swing piece who's been really good. And Joel's the captain of that first bench group. He plays until the end of the first and third quarters. And right as Joel comes out of the game, which normally that would be your spot that the other team just kills you and they've struggled in those minutes historically – you bring in James and you do you spread it out and, and play, you know, pretty offense first basketball. They're not getting a ton of stops with that group. Yeah. But but as long as they're either winning or drawing level in those minutes, we know that historically, if Joel Embiid is on the floor, they're going to win those minutes pretty handily against almost anybody. So I I, I just think they found a formula that works. I think on Joel's end of things too. We've seen him go from, you know, all the work he put in to dominate from the elbows rather than being a post-up guy. His post-up touches or his post-up volume is lower than ever. More of his offense is coming from that free throw line extended area than it ever has. And that was, you know, a, a mandate, not a mandate, but a directive from the organization. Certainly something that Joel went into the offseason with his trainer thinking, you know, this is how I have to evolve. Well, let so me ask he's you, his let me best self there, really, too. Real quick, I actually want to ask you about that. So when you say uh, a mandate from the organization, I know you don't mean like flat-out mandate, but do you think the change in his game was driven by him, or do you think this is the team saying to him, hey, we, you know, heading into this offseason, this, this previous one, here's something we think could really help your game? Well, I think it's both. Like I, I think okay. probably in exit interviews and things like that, they went over – you know, here's went well for the season. Here's what wasn't working. Let's look back over you know the last few years, specifically while Doc has been here, and say, what can we do to make it easier on you in the playoffs, in crunch time, and all that stuff? And I think just with the sober view of how the NBA has changed, it's just hard and harder than it's ever been to play out of the post. So I, I think that's probably an easy thing for the organization for Joel, for his trainer, for everybody around him to say, yeah, we need to make an adjustment here. So I think that's sort of a, a collective decision and an idea that comes to mind that that's a big contribution here. Like mm. the re- part of the reason they've been so good in crunch time is that there are fewer turnovers from Joel. There are fewer possessions where 
you're throwing him the ball on the block and he's got his back to the basket and somebody's coming from behind him and, you know, poking the ball away. It's a lot of just, he's shooting over somebody from the free throw line. Like a lot of guys, you would say that's not a, a high quality or the most high efficiency shot. But because he's so good at it, yeah. they've made it so they can run offense like that in crunch time. And the defense, honestly, is the other thing. Like if we look at crunch time numbers, they're playing elite, elite, elite defense in the final five minutes of close games. And so I, I know we talked about this on the podcast before, but I think that's one of the big reasons that I, I'm bullish on them as a playoff team is that the game will be slower. It's more of a half court game in the playoffs. And Joel's influence on the defensive end of the floor is going to be an even bigger deal. And that's honestly, that's another thing that I didn't bring up yet as far as why they're so good right now. Joel's taking his game to another level on defense during this last, you know, yeah. 10 games since the, the all-star break ended. So if he plays at that level on defense and he's still this good on offense and he's getting all the help from James and Tyrese is in, you know, his best possible form right now. Of course, they're going to be one of the best teams in the league. They have an MVP candidate, a true second star, and a third, like, rising star guy, yeah. along with a bunch of helpful role players around them. So the other thing they have now, in addition to that, is the number two seed, at least as of this recording. We're recording this Monday morning. Their percentage points ahead of the Celtics. Uh, so they have it. If the playoffs ended today, they would be the number two seed. So I think that... The next question from there is obviously, A, do you think they'll hold on to it? And B, do you think the one seed is still possible? On the last pod, I said, you know, I've covered special teams. I know what special looks like. This feels like it's special. And special seasons end up with one seeds. They don't really end up with two seeds. So I, I frankly sit here. I look at the way they're playing. I think they actually match up well with the Bucks, And, you know, they played them well last time they played and the Celtics, man, I, you know, we did the the pod after they lost that game to the Celtics, and I said I think there's only a 15% chance, if that, that they would beat the Celtics. I have moved up from that. The Sixers are playing better. The Celtics feel like they're collapsing or at least not playing as well. But when you look at the landscape of the top three seeds in the, in the uh, East, like just what are your overall thoughts when we get into specifics? Just what do you think about what's transpired here? So I think – I'm a little leery of saying, yeah, they're going to beat Boston in a series now, but certainly you can see some of Boston's weaknesses coming down the stretch here. I do think one big trend that I'm curious to see if this holds up, and there are some Boston people that have suggested this might have something to do with a wrist issue he's had this season, <laughs> that Tatum's outside shooting has sort of gone off a cliff the second half of the season. So that's one of those things that if you think it's due to maybe a health issue, then that's a real concern. Like if Tatum isn't shooting well and they're trying to play these, you know, multiple big men lineups that Boston likes to play and Marcus Smart historically is a really streaky shooter. Well, then things get a lot tighter like that. Yeah. That shrinks your margin for error. And I think another thing I brought this up on the podcast previously, Joe Missoula doesn't seem like he wants to play Derek White in big spots. Like there was a game that Boston lost the other night where Derek White didn't play the entire fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. And he's been probably one of their five best players all season. And Boston ends up losing the game. So I, I do think there are some weird things happening there with, you know, the hierarchy and who's preferred by the coach and things like that. They also have not been healthy. Like 
Al Horford and Robert Williams have missed time. Marcus Smart's missed time. So you say when they're fully whole in the playoffs, maybe they get right. Although I do think with Al Horford and Robert Williams specifically, two different problems for them. I think Horford, because he's coming off a long run last year compared to having basically a sabbatical the year before, I would be concerned if I'm Boston whether he's going to hold up over the course of a long playoff run. And Robert Williams, frankly, is just never healthy. So, you know, if you say that they're two front court guys who are essential to, you know, building their defensive identity, if you can't trust that they're going to be healthy when it matters, well, then that's a pretty significant wrinkle in the playoffs. So I'm I'm still, if I were picking like the the team to come out of a Sixers Celtic series, I still probably pick Boston, but nowhere near as convincingly at this point. Uh, as far as Milwaukee goes in the number one seed, I still think it's probably unrealistic just because the Sixers closing schedule is as tough as, as it is. But if you just look at it and say they play both of Milwaukee and Boston and control yeah. those games, at the very least with Milwaukee, you say, okay, if they beat them, then you only need Milwaukee to lose one more game than the Sixers coming down the stretch because the Sixers would own the tiebreaker in that scenario and they don't have to outright pass them. Now that requires them now to beat teams like the Warriors on the road, the Suns on the road, the Nuggets on the road, Dallas at home. Like there are a ton of tough games for Philly coming up. I guess the saving grace is just that they are playing better than anybody else in the league right now. Like they are the hottest team in the league. And so we can sit here and say they have the toughest remaining schedule, and that's definitely true, and that Milwaukee has also been very, very good over the past basically two months. But you know, I, I don't think it's completely out of the question. I still think I would say the two seed is probably their realistic high point, but it's certainly not off the table at this point. So when I look at it, um, I, I do think they're going to finish with the two seed. If you look at the three teams and what each has left – the Celtics, I think, overall have the toughest – they don't have the toughest schedule, but they have the toughest road. If you look at it, the Sixers do, according to Tankathon, have the toughest remaining schedule in the NBA. Because as you said, Nuggets, Sun, Warriors, all on the road. Nets and Heat, uh, they're, I believe, both at home. They're not great teams, but the Nets are playing relatively well, and the Heat always seem to give the Sixers a tough time. But what the Celtics have is they have a top-10 schedule, their ninth toughest schedule remaining – and I believe that they have both the Celtic. They the Celtics have to go on the road to play the Sixers and the Bucks, whereas the Sixers get the Celtics at home and the Bucks get them both at home. Both the Celtics and Sixers have to go to Milwaukee. So the Bucks do have the easiest path. To your point, I do think the Sixers are playing the best of all three teams right now. And to how we started the pod, it feels like if the Sixers can stay healthy, play their game. They might only lose outside of Sixers, uh, outside of the Celtics and Bucks. They literally might only lose two more games the rest of the season, just with with how well they're playing. Like there will be losses, but they're better than the Nuggets. I think they're better than the Warriors. Now the Warriors at home are tough, and then the Suns. Who knows if KD is back by then? Like that that game's kind of and it's a back to back as well. So that's just a brutal. So so overall, but then you look at the Celtics. I mean, the Celtics their toughest game remaining. If you remove Milwaukee and the Sixers, is the Kings like. I just, I think they are going to finish with the two seed and I'm not ruling out the one seed because I do think the Sixers will go into Milwaukee and beat the Bucks. I think they'll win that game. It really is all going to come down to that Celtics game. And it is kind of fitting because the whole kind of time we've done this pod, 
My biggest concern has been the Celtics. They don't play them well. They always seem to beat them. If they can beat the Celtics and the Bucks, and I know that's a big if, but if they can do it, I do think they'll be the one seed. I think the other things will break their way. So I think a lot of this is just going to come down to motivation, not just from these three teams, but everybody they're playing. Yeah. If you go down and look at just game by game, I think the Bucks are the only team that have more than one game against a team that is just like totally out of the playoff picture. Mm-hmm. Wednesday night, they play San Antonio. I believe they play Detroit next week. And those are two games that should just be absolute gimme games for Milwaukee. Whereas with the Sixers, even their their worst games are like Atlanta, who's a playing team, Miami, who's a playing team, yep. Chicago over the next two. So I think Chicago is probably the worst team they play that they have left. But the problem with Chicago is that they have this home road back to back. And we've seen all throughout this season, not just with the Sixers, but across the league, when you get one team back to back on the schedule, it tends to be a split almost no matter what. It honestly would probably be one of the most impressive things they've done yet this season. It sounds weird to beat Chicago twice in a row, but it's just one of those things where if you get the first win, it's always like foot off the gas, lose the next one, whether you're the... They are playing really well. Like to your point, I agree, but I think that a month ago I would have been more concerned. Now I look at how they're playing and the way they're handling each game. I I do think they're going to win both games. I get your point, but I think they're perfectly set up to do it right now with with the way they're playing and just how seriously they're taking all these games they are for sure i I, my thing that i come back to is just on top of that Mm -hmm. chicago is fighting to get into the play-in tournament like they're actively battling for a playoff spot or playoff positioning for some of these other games so they don't have a single over their last what do they have like 12 games left they don't have a single foot off the gas, we can coast through this game type of game. Because if they do that, they're going to run into either a hungry team that's trying to just stay in the playoff picture in general, or you're looking at the Western Conference where suddenly this is so junked up and you know you might be battling for home court advantage in a series where yeah. that could be the difference for some of these Western Conference teams. Or in the cases of Milwaukee and Boston, like all three of those teams are now motivated to – avoid the other two in round two right like i think the sixers have reached the point where we can say none of these three teams want to really play each other if they don't have to until the Mm -hmm. conference finals i think in the past you would have said milwaukee and boston probably view the sixers as a tier below but i think especially with milwaukee with the sixers having beaten them twice once without harden and once with both teams fully healthy you say all right they're all pretty motivated to gun for as high a seed as they can, because even if they don't get the number one seed, they're at least going to have potentially home court in a series against, you know, however the matchups fall here. And I, I do think that that is going to be perhaps the single biggest factor in who comes out of the East, because, you know, if you are the two or three seed, even if you make it out of that gauntlet of a second round, you're then probably less rested and less fresh for a conference finals against the other elite team yeah, for sure. that's left in the conference. So the value of that number one seed is sky high, I think. And so I think that's what's going to probably make it toughest to emerge with the number one seed for the Sixers. 
So for you, is it going to come down to pretty much your East power rankings is going to be just be basically almost how they finish? Because I do think when you look at the three, they're all very close. The obvious advantage of being the one, two, three, whatever is game seven, game five. The first two games are our own, are on your own, own home court. When you look at the top of the East, would that be how you're going to power rank them? Like seating aside to that point, I guess what I'm asking is, how do you think the Sixers match up with these teams right now? Like, do you think it's going to be as simple as whoever gets home court? Or do you think they're playing well enough that they could win series, even if they didn't have the higher seed? I think they could win games on the road. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to handicap it, I think whoever's going to have home court in these series is going to be, even if it's a slight favorite, they'll be a favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Boston one, it, it just feels like nobody has confidence in them beating Boston mm-hmm. specifically. And I do agree with the idea that you know, it's it's a tougher matchup for both James and Tyrese. But I think, as we saw in the last meeting, I think if Joel is the best player in that series, that kind of neutralizes everything, right? And if he's able to just beat up on Al Horford and that totally compromises how they want to set up on defense and, you know, their timing with sending doubles and, and what have you. And Boston still has this problem where with Derek White and the, the ultra big front court and Marcus smart, who has been really up and down this year. I honestly, I also think somebody like Grant Williams, who was a reliable role player for them last season has been kind of within the crosshairs of the fan base in Boston all season for being Mm -hmm. really erratic and kind of untrustworthy in big moments. They're sorting through some issues that I don't know that they'll work through those by the time the playoffs start. So I certainly think there's an opening for them to beat them. I do think it would be important for them, as important as a regular season game in April can be, but getting a win over Boston at the end of the year, just to get that under your belt and say, we can beat this team, like mentally get past that hurdle of, you know, being down 3-0 in the season series doesn't mean that you can't beat a team in the playoffs, but it is sort of a big weight to to get off your shoulders heading into a uh, – a potential second round or conference final series. You think there's an argument that against the Celtics, the Sixers would have the two best players in the series? Because they obviously have the best player. Like Embiid has passed Tatum at this point. I am a Tatum guy. I fought this battle with my friends for years. He has passed Tatum. But do you think right now Harden is playing better than Tatum or Brown? Maybe. I, I do think the thing you have to keep in mind is that Tatum has just been a very good playoff guy for the most yeah. part. And has had some big playoff moments in recent years. They have been consistently successful in the postseason for a reason. Like those two guys have been able to elevate their game and like ultimately, like we can sit here and break down the schedules and seeding and all that. But like really the big question for the two stars on Philadelphia and for the head coach for that matter is will these guys be able to translate it to the playoffs? And, you know, I do think we maybe we should talk about Doc a little bit That I'm now that I'm thinking about this. Like, I think if you're just looking at how he's coaching the regular mm-hmm. season, like set aside the results. Like he has an MVP caliber player. He's got a second star. He's got an awesome version of Maxi, so on and so forth. They're going to win a lot of games. So we don't need to say like, oh, Doc is the reason that they're, they've been this successful. But if you're looking at how they've set up out of the break and where they've landed coming down the stretch where they do have a real identity, they have an elite offense, and they've been good enough on defense, great on defense in crunch time, which is you know what's going to matter. And you look at the little things Doc is doing where 
he is making like offense defense subs at the end of first and third quarters just to squeeze the value out of an extra possession. He is staggering more. He is, you know, something like this seems really small and insignificant on a grand scale, but bringing Daniel House Jr. back into the rotation just to make sure that like he's alive I was gonna say, it if is they crazy. need him in the playoffs. And he started uh, one of the two games, right? One yes. of his last games, he started that. Yeah, that that's, he feels like a very dark move because it did seem like he was basically dead on the bench. Like, I'd forgotten about him. Yeah, so he brings him back in. And honestly, he's been decent. Like, he's been nothing right. spectacular. But if he's just like an average replacement level role player coming off of the bench and you can bring him in and say, hey, George Niang's getting picked on defensively or not hitting shots, I can bring House Jr. in and we can play a, a switch-heavy defensive first lineup and that helps us get back to the minutes where Joel's on the floor. So all these like little things that are happening. And then like the Maxi thing. Maxi, they decide to look at, you know, the Melton starting lineup performs really well in December when Maxi's mm-hmm. out. And Doc says, okay, we're going to look at this. And even though he says three starting lineups, it's really just one for a couple months or whatever right. it is. And then he says, like, Tyrese is struggling. We got to change things up. The the numbers have shifted. And he brings Maxi in. And now that lineup is humming again. The second unit is working. Those combinations are working. Paul Reed, same deal. Montrezl Harrell was given a, a pretty large opportunity to win the backup center minutes. Doc, with enough runway left in the regular season, says, I'm going back to Paul. We're going to see how that works with James as the, the bench guy that ends up working out like those minutes have been good. Paul has been, you know, he's had some hiccups the last, you know, few games or so, but generally has been pretty good in that backup center role. And so I think a lot of this is like doc is doing the things that people wanted him to do historically playing young guys, juggling the lineups, trying some different stuff. And now that they ultimately have landed on, this is the formula that works. The question is, is he prepared to make those same sort of decisions in the playoffs? Yeah. I think he's made more of the smart forward thinking type of decisions now in you know March and February and January. But you and I both know that he has to be willing to do that in April, May, and June, or nobody's going to give a shit that he was willing to try stuff in you know the post all-star break period. Well, all right. So that was the next question I had and it segues perfectly off of doc. I'm just being honest with myself, right? When when we started this pod, it was they have to get out of the second round. Nothing matters. Only the playoffs. Who cares? Who cares what they do in the regular season? Only the second round matters. I'm being completely honest. I'm like shifting off that a little bit. Embiid has been. Uh, really- I don't hold agree. On, on, I don't agree. <clears throat> the 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 team has been really special. Harden's playing well. Doc's doing a great job. Maxi looks great. There is a world where they can lose in the second round, and this season is still a success. If you think about the fact that the Bucs are really good, the Celtics are falling off, so you could debate that one a little bit. But let's say they do, and it's unlikely they face the Bucs in the second round, but let's say they do face the Bucs and they lose a really tight series, or the Celtics for what it's worth. Are you still at the point where it's a failure if they don't get out? Like, is is the level Embiid is playing and the job Doc's doing and how good's Harden looking – is that changing things for you? Because on a, on a certain sense, it is silly to have the entire season be dictated off of, you know, games five, six, seven, or whatever of a second round series. Like, are you still at the point where they have to get out the second round? Yes. I mean, it's a results Why? business. Why? That It's a results business. Like, this is it. So I think in, in a sport like football, I think you'd have a better argument where 
single elimination really skews things. Like there, there are a lot of years where the best team does not win the Super Bowl, that there are fluke runs and mm-hmm. there's just a bad matchup or whatever it is. But when you have a seven game series to prove you're the best team, we can't sit here and say, hey, Joel might be the best player in the world, that James might be the second best player mm-hmm. in, you know, not every series, but a lot of these series. Yeah. And if not, he's at least one of the top three guys. And say that Tyrese is great and the bench is better and say all these things and then be like, well, they have an excuse to lose and it, it's fine. Like, well, but the best three teams in the league might be in the East. It's not like, that's you know, true, but like, yeah. look, you have to find a way to get it done. And if, if it's a failure of the best player, if it's a failure of the coach, if it's a combination of factors, whatever it is, it's going to be a failure if they can't get out of the second round again. And I think one of the biggest reasons to be a failure is if you lose in the second round, I know that I've poo-pooed the idea of Harden going to Houston. Aren't you opening the door for Harden to be like, well, if I can't even get out of the second round with as good as we've been, what the fuck am I doing here? You're preaching to the choir. I've always said, I think I think Harden's probably going to Houston no matter what. Like I, I look, there's a chance he stays for sure. But, but, but that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like I think a few weeks ago, if they would have lost in the second round, we would have both sat here and made a legitimate argument. Fire Doc. You don't want Harden back anyway. You have to kind of reshuffle this the cards in a lot of ways, right? Now I think this team is is this team is legit really good. Like this team could play in whatever how many seasons you want to say and have a chance to win the title every single year. I think the way it's stacking up this year, there the the way it's stacking up for them is the the other two teams that are probably the other two best teams in the NBA are right in front of them, right? So if they lose in the second round and Harden is willing to come back, we can get into the contract implications. There is a world where we're the team we're watching could win it next year. Like there is. Whereas before, I think the, the, the perception or the assumption was if they lose in the second round, it's because this collection isn't good enough. I don't think that's the case anymore. And again, they could get to the playoffs and Harden could be terrible. And then we have that conversation. But if they play their A game and just lose – I'm more okay than I used to be with just running it back because we're seeing this team is really good. Well, so here is the really the problem with that logic. Then what is the case for them winning at any point in the near to midterm? Because Milwaukee's core, like Giannis is essentially the same age as Joel. Tatum and Brown are younger than both of the Sixers stars. So the Celtics core guys are going to get better. Giannis is going to be at roughly the same level as Joel, you know, until their careers are over. Right. So if they can't beat them right now with Joel at like absolute apex, and we say, you know, as Joel hits his 30s, with all the health issues he's had relative to Giannis, he will probably decline quicker than Giannis will. Like that's just probably the reality. I agree with that. Their their state of their health and you know how they play and what have you. So if they can't beat them right now, you could go into this offseason saying they, they're they probably just never going to beat either of these teams. Well, like, but, but I don't know. My counter to that is, so what? You make the team worse on purpose? Like, like, we know that they're really good like this. And I think that sometimes, to your point, football is single elimination. So there is more – I don't want to use the term luck, but – Jalen Hurts drops a football. He never drops all season. They lose by three. Like stuff like it ha- that happens in a single elimination. So you're right. It's just in a- flukier. There's a lot yeah. more. You're inviting more chaos into how it but, is. But you can also argue that if you have a team like 
however you want to rank the Bucks. Let's say just for argument's sake, the Bucks are a 10 out of 10, even though they're not. But let's just say they are. The Sixers are not lower than an eight and a half, nine. I mean, they are right there, right? You can make the argument if they played the Bucks in however many seven, 10, seven game series, it might be five, five or six to four, right? So to your thing about if they can't win now, they can't win next year. I'm not really sure if that's the case because, and you don't want to plan it this way, but who knows, like Tatum injures himself. Giannis, Giannis gets hurt. I just don't see how, when we look at how well they're playing right now, like, what are the moves you make then this offseason where you go, I feel better about this team? Like Bradley Beal, Zach Levine. I mean, there's not, you know, and I guess guys always pop up, but I don't see it. I used to be where I would just blow it up to blow it up. I, I get your point about the frustration, but part of me thinks they're like, they've already shown they're good enough to run it back, even if whatever happens in the playoffs. So I think the easy answer to that is you trade Tobias for, you know, multiple better fitting role players yeah, and maybe I don't know you change the coach. Consider, I don't know if I consider Tobias the core anymore though. Like when I say blow it up, I mean Harden, Maxi, and B Doc. Like if you move No, I mean, teams, look, I see your point in the sense that like you could justify bringing back James Joel to or James Joel and Tyrese and say those are our three Doc. main guys and but here's the other thing. You brought up James are we sure he's ever going to have a season as good as this again? Well, that's a fair question too. Yeah. Because this is, I'm actually, I'm just, I pulled up basketball reference real quick. This is the single best three-point shooting season he's ever had. He is equal to his best efficiency from three. And he's doing it on not quite double the volume, but the last time he shot this high from three, he was 22 years old in Oklahoma City. And he's only shooting 4.73s a game. He's shooting 7.33s a game, making the same amount. It's almost certain that he's going to be worse shooting the well, basketball next year. And so but, then you have to think about, you know, how much more does the other stuff matter? How much does the explosiveness and the finishing at the rim and all that stuff? And look, that stuff has been better than it was last year, right? Where he hit a nadir for his career. He physically looked off the pace. And I do think he has bounced back in a way that I am confident saying, you know, he's going to be very good over the next however many years. But if we say like, this is the career shooting year, and this is probably, it might be the last truly great James Harden season left. Like we don't know that he yeah. could very well come back next year, be just as good, whether it's here or elsewhere. But it's also possible that he'll be 34 years old and he's just not going to play this well again. Well, but all right. So, A, I agree that his burst to the rim has been better than it was last year. And that is something you worry about falling off. But I'll ask you this. Like, do you think this, the shooting percentage is higher because it's just one of those years? And I know three-point shooting can be, you know, up and down. Or do you think he's taking different kinds of shots? Like, it does feel like he's catching. That's definitely some ball. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't see why that would change next year. And I do think his, what what's made him special this year is he's been an outstanding playmaker. And that's not really predicated on athleticism. Now, you have to be able to get to the rim and shoot well to be as efficient as a playmaker, as, as Ben found out, right? But, I mean, ultimately, to your point, you don't know. But I don't think his game is really predicated on, on athleticism as much is maybe other other players' games are. Yeah, it's more strength than it is, you know, speed and pace. So and and, Clay, and and like 
basketball smarts too. You know, like I think just you're seeing the result of playing in the league for however many years he has. Like he knows how to be really smart with his movements. He doesn't waste steps, certainly not on defense. Like, you know, I, I think so from that respect, his game does kind of age well, almost like a wine, like a hardened wine, one might say. Yeah, so I, I guess I just worry that if you don't do it this year, not only are you looking at the big picture and saying, well, Giannis is this old and Tatum and Brown are this old and they still have all this runway in front of them. You're also thinking about or is the window for the Sixers shrinking just in general? Like even if we set aside, you know, all the other stuff because Maxie's about to get paid. So you're not getting salary relief when Tobias's contract comes off of the books, unless you're making some kind of big trade. This right. is you're largely kind of, this core is the core unless you're willing to go and make a, a big splashy move this off season or in the years to come. So yeah, I just, I think they have to, you have to get to the conference finals, even if it's just a mental thing. Like, again, it's the same thing with the Celtics yeah. thing. It, it's less that I think winning it or getting to the conference finals this year is like that this year is more important than any other season where I agree with you. There's luck that comes into everything. Milwaukee's run to the title when they won it, they were fortunate with a bunch of different injury luck. And there's some yeah, things that the, broke their the way. Raptors like the title. The Raptors Kevin Dur- after the Warriors got hurt in the finals or whatever it was. Or like Kevin Durant's foot being on the line in that Milwaukee series. If Kevin Durant doesn't step on the line and the Nets win that series, not only are the Bucks like the Bucks' future is much different. We might be talking about the Brooklyn Nets with KD, Kyrie, and James Harden as yeah. like defending champions, and you know they they turn into a mini dynasty because things don't go haywire the way they did. Like you never, there's so many. Or Giannis isn't in Milwaukee. Like there's all types. Of- exactly. Yeah. So, but but that's why I think it matters to get a run under your belt because at a certain point, you're, these guys are going to hit the wall of, and maybe Joel hits the wall and says. I just want to see something different. Like we have not been given an indication that he's itching to leave or anything like that. But if you just look at the history of the league, as many guys say, I want to be this place forever. I want to be with this team and win here and stay here to the end of my career. There are only so many humiliating or crushing playoff defeats that happen before that guy comes back and says, you know what? I just need to see something different. Like I just, I want to go elsewhere. I want to play with somebody different, have different management, different coach, whatever it is. And and this organization will do whatever it takes to try to avoid that in terms of moving people in and out. But there always is a shelf life if you can't get it done in the playoffs. I just think what you're describing is more change for the sake of change as opposed to change because it's needed. Now, that can be okay too. Like when you look at the the Eagles uh, losing Super Bowl last year, I think there's a good argument for getting as many new starters as you can simply so you're not carrying the baggage of losing that game. Much like the Sixers are carrying maybe more baggage than any team in professional sports with all these like second round losses, right? But I think... Again, that's change for the sake of change more than this roster is not good enough because this roster is good enough. It is like it, they they might not win it, but this combination, this team, this version of Joel, this Harden, like they are good enough. So I just I think that's been my biggest change over the last month is I used to need to see it. Now, if they don't do it, I agree with your point. 
Joel probably is frustrated. Maybe it's just change for the sake of change. And maybe Doc gets fired just because they have to do something. But I don't think as of now, Doc deserves to be fired. I mean, who's, who knows what's happened in the playoffs? Maybe they'll make a, he'll make a bad mistake. But Doc has done a good enough job where if they lose an, like an epic series in, in game seven to a second in the second round, I don't know. I, I'm not just firing them just to fire them. Yeah, and actually, really, the parallel is sort of um, the 2019 season with Jimmy Butler and Brett Brown. And, you know, I think a lot of people after the loss to the Celtics a year prior were like, well, if they don't at least get to the conference finals or finals, Brett is out of here. And then mm-hmm. you watch how that second round series plays out. And Brett out coached Nick Nurse for basically yeah. three quarters of the series and made important adjustments. The important adjustment he couldn't make is having the best player in the series because Kawhi was going absolutely bananas against them. So that's he ended up coming back, and that was a, a thing that would have been a surprise coming in. There were even reports in the middle of the series that if they didn't win it, that the Sixers were going to fire him. Like Brett yeah. was under that level of, uh, of pressure. Uh, I don't know if we'll get anything like that with Doc during the playoff run, but it's all about how it plays out. Like if Joel gets hurt or James gets hurt, or there's some, some excuse, then, you know, we could probably sit here and have some nuanced conversations about, well, should they run it back and and just trust that the spine of what's here is going to be good enough. I just think that the psychological weight that will continue to weigh on the organization, if it just feels like for who, for what, after all this time that they haven't been able to do anything different, I think that's going to matter big time. And I also think the part of the second round playoff losses that's really weighed on people is it doesn't feel like they've played their best and lost. It feels like they never play their best and that's why they lose. The Raptors series was a good one, but the Hawks, right? It just, it feels like each time the heat last year and beats hurt, Harden doesn't play well, all those things. I think the feeling might be different in a second round loss if we watch it and we feel like they played great. Like if they play great and we know it and they lose, I think the uh, the emotion will be different. So, all right, I have two. I one one quick point on that before yeah, you ask this last thing. I t- actually texted somebody yesterday because the Atlanta Hawks blew a twenty plus point lead against the Spurs yesterday, and I texted somebody and I said uh, the worst crime Ben Simmons committed was making people think that the Hawks are a serious <laughs> team. Like that's the one. That's the one that leaps out. Right. That was your clear cut opportunity. To go to the conference finals you're the yeah. number one seed you have home court advantage atlanta is not very good Agreed. and you have a home game seven and ben simmons being a total basket case throughout that series is not the only reason they lost which always has to be said but it is the primary reason they lost that ben simmons was just tiny in the yeah, spot he had a really really series. bad series. yeah and if you win that series and Joel at least has that one in the bag, then yeah, I mean, we could sit here and say there's not as much uh, weighing on the organization or on Joel specifically, but because that one was lost specifically, I mean, you can go through the rest of them and say, Hey, he, Joel was hurt last year against Miami and the bubble bend in play and it's the bubble anyway. So who gives a shit? So they lost the Boston, but nobody really cares. Right. But then they lost to Boston, Ben's rookie year, and they basically should have gotten swept. They got kind of fortunate that they they were not swept in that series. They lose in five despite Kyrie being out and all that. And so you just look back and look back and look back, and it's none of these are like 
you don't look back favorably on the Sixers that they well, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I think with the and I hate to always tie it to the Eagles, but you know, if you look at that Super Bowl, the Eagles played really well and they lost, and then people are gonna be upset no matter what. But there's just a difference when you watch a game and you feel like they lost at their best and you feel like they came up small. And I think that's the frustration with the Sixers. It isn't so much that they're not winning. Clearly, that is part of it. But it's just every time it feels like a different thing. So to your point, like if Harding gets hurt or Embiid gets hurt, I'm actually almost less willing to run it back. I need I'm okay running it back if I feel they lose a series where they played really well and it just is what it is. They lost. I That's what I think I need to see more than to your point, like if, if Joel or Harden gets hurt, then I'm like, this just isn't going to happen. They're always hurt. But that's what I think I need to see. So, all right. I have two more kind of non-serious things. Um, so is there anything else you want to touch on Sixers related before we get to those? No, nah, just get the non-serious things out okay. there. So, so tell me why Jokic isn't just Ben Simmons with a longer leash. Like, tell, like I, I watch Jokic highlights, right? And he looks just like Ben Simmons looked on offense. Just like him. Barely shoots from three. Point four, point center guy. I mean, he scores like nine more points a game than Ben Simmons. He does, but here's the thing. Ben never got a chance to be Jokic. Like, Jokic is that team. He is the center of that team. It revolves around him, right? I, I, and this is not a defending Ben thing as much as it's a taking a shot at Jokic thing, but... Ben was never allowed to be what Jokic was because of Embiid. And Embiid is awesome. Embiid complements his game in a lot of ways in terms of being able to stretch the floor and shoot. But the reality is Embiid was in the middle of the court. If I think if, if Ben went to Denver, right, I'm not saying he'd be Jokic, but I bet you his career would be a little bit different. And I think that actually like they have very similar styles. They both shoot close to the rim. Jokic makes less than one three a game. It's not like he's launching it from deep all the time. Jokic's best skill is passing. That's uh, that's Ben's best skill, right? Jokic plays no defense, so that's a major difference. But I think Jokic is actually closer to Ben as a player than he is in beat. No shot, man. All right, well, tell me, why. No. tell me why, though. Because Jokic is way better. All right, well, like this. outside of just that, like, tell me where the comparison is wrong. And Ben is a big man that, that's best skill is passing the ball that mostly scores around the rim. How is that not Jokic? Embiid can do everything, right? Embiid can score from all three levels. Jokic can't really score from all three levels. Like, tell, where? how is that wrong? Ben can't shoot the fucking ball. Like yeah, now he cannot. Can't. I'm talking about. He's people. never been able to shoot. Like, like it, Jokic can't really shoot from deep either. He barely does. Yes, it. he can. He, just he makes he makes point nine a game. So it's not like he's out here like making two or three a game. If right? Ben made point nine a game, we'd be throwing a fucking parade for the guy. Well, but that, and look, what happened with Ben? I agree. Like that was it's a whole chapter. But the point I'm making is their games are very similar. Like when you watch Jokic highlights, they look like Ben highlights. They look just like them. They look if, like if Ben was good at basketball. No, 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 no. They look like Ben looked because how Jokic scores is the same way Ben scored. And the way he passes is the same way Ben passes. The only difference is an occasional three is in there. That's really the only difference between the two. They are not at all close. Like the, here's the biggest reason you know this is wrong. Ben was, when the trade sent Ben to Brooklyn, everyone's like, oh my God, this is finally the team that's going to unlock Ben Simmons. He's got literally two of the best offensive players in the league alongside him where they can play whatever style they want. He can be the Ben Simmons he's always wanted to be. It's Ben Simmons and shooters. We're going to spread the floor. And he had his worst ever season. 
He sucks ass. Right, but Jokic is averaging a triple double with like 25 points a game. Again, so you're talking about you love to poo-poo uh Jokic in favor of Embiid just because the the scoring gap is what it is. The scoring gap between Jokic and Embiid is basically the scoring gap between Jokic and peak Ben Simmons. So right. if you're saying I, I like that. that is not an insignificant detail, you can't say, hey, this guy's averaging nine more points a game, but that doesn't really matter. Like, yeah. of course it matters. Like, right. so, so first of all, I'm not saying Ben's a better player, or I'm saying their styles are very similar. The way they play basketball is very similar. Jokic is just a better shooter, so he makes more of his shots around the rim. But there's and style, a better passer and a better player. I don't know like if he's, he's a way better passer. Is he? I mean, it, Ben. Ben had like again. You have to think about peak Ben, like pre Hawk series Ben, not not the Ben that went to Brooklyn when his career just completely imploded. Right, the Ben that to your point, there was a there was a time where the Sixers could have picked Ben over Embiid. And you don't think that if Ben was on a team at his peak and never had to deal with the Embiid stuff, that he couldn't develop into a similar type of player as Jokic? Jokic can do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to defer to anybody. Ben has Ben always had to defer to people, right? Now, Ben is not as good of a ben shooter. Ben didn't have to do anything. Ben, well, with, as the guy defer. with the ball in his hands, got to choose how to run the offense. His choice was to play like a pussy because he is not – built Whoa. to be a star okay. player in the NBA. Like that, that is the flat out the bottom line. The nugget, the nuggets are able to succeed this way because Jokic actually will embrace being the guy. Ben does not want to be that guy. Like here's the, another thing that we, we can talk about with like the mental side of it. When Ben and his agent, well, former agent, cause we didn't get into I know, the yeah, that, uh, yeah. him and clutch mute. I'm doing air quotes for anybody listening to this later, mutually parted ways. <laughs> Um, one of the things that they told the Sixers as the, one of the many things, cause their story changed about 15 times, but one of the many things they told the Sixers was that Ben would have preferred to be on a team where he was able to, it was more of a rebuilding situation yeah. that he could learn and try and fail in a less pressure packed environment. Do you think you're ever going to hear a quote like that about Nikola Jokic? No. Well, no. To be fair, Nikola Jokic plays in that place where Denver's games aren't even on TV. They never play meaningful games, right? If you look at Jokic's first few years, he only averaged like 15 points for his first three years. It wasn't like he's, he's a like, second round pick. He wasn't playing well, right, that kind again, of minutes. Again, I think Jokic is a better player than Ben Simmons, obviously. I'm just saying the styles of the players are way more comparable. Like Jokic to me is, more, again, I'll say it, more comparable to peak Ben besides the defense than he is to Embiid. Embiid is a far superior offensive player. It's not even close, right? Jokic could not do the things Embiid does. Simmons can kind of do what Jokic does. Like he could he could be a cheap He could average Okay, Elliot. Nikola Jokic averaged 27 points a game last year. In yeah. what reality is Ben Simmons ever scoring 27 points? I'll tell points you this reality. The reality where it could happen is if he's on a team like Denver where he can do whatever he wants, where he gets drafted there, right? I'm, I mean, let's be real. Do you not think having Embiid impacted Ben's game? It impacted it positively. I like this has been my but biggest also thing there was, for there years. There was negatives to it too. Like when the way that he had a player next absolutely to him, did not, not no. compliment his style. How did it not? How did how did Ben not compliment Embiid's style? I'm sorry. How, how, how did, did? Sorry, I'll flip that. You don't think that having Embiid a center as the player for Ben didn't negatively impact his game? 
I think Joel Embiid is one of like three people in the league that actually would get the most out of Ben Simmons. Because here's the problem with Ben Simmons as a foundational piece. If he can't shoot, he has to play with a center that can shoot the ball. Okay. So you're already eliminating every single center in the league that is not at least a decent three point shooter. You cannot play with Ben. That eliminates Bam out of bio. That eliminates like Draymond Green as a small ball guy. Every single one of these very good players, you're fucked. You cannot play them with Ben. (laughs) So then, no, no, no. Don't let me go here. Go ahead. Go ahead. If you eliminate all them, then you move on to every center that can shoot. Now, how many of those centers that can shoot can de- can protect the rim and play good defense? Because Ben cannot play center. Ben, they tried to play small ball in Brooklyn, again, with fucking Kevin Durant and high-level role players, and they failed miserably. Nick Claxton at center was a better option for Brooklyn than Ben Simmons at center. So he has to be at least an average sh- outside shooter, and they have to be an elite rim protector. The full list of those guys is Joel Embiid. He's the only fucking guy in the league. So fundamentally, you cannot build a team that works for Ben Simmons that doesn't include a guy that is at or near Joel Embiid's level at center, period. I don't disagree with what you're saying about Embiid, but there's a difference between having a center that can do that and running the team through that center. Was that when when, when Simmons and Embiid were on the team, was a team not ran through Embiid? Sure, but so it's your argument that Ben could average four more points a game and lost fucking 60 games a year? Because you could go 20. Ben could average 20 points a game and go 20 and 62. We could could certainly set that to you. And again, we're talking about peak Ben versus now. What I'm saying is, and we can can move on from this, but what, what I'm saying is that I think that when I watch Jokic highlights, it looks like Ben. It just does. Like the way he plays... Looks like I'm telling if you, if Ben was good at basketball, yeah, that that's right. if Ben could like. make a few more layups, he would be Jokic. And besides, and I'm shoot the, threes, like, and was willing Jokic to shoot. Doesn't shoot threes. Yes, he, 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 Elliot, makes, he makes almost a three a game. Yeah, okay, so he makes one three a game. That's the major difference. That's the the whole the whole difference is he makes point nine three more a game. Yes, because people have to guard him. Like, like we've I, you we've had this argument a hundred thousand times with Ben. The whole I know. problem not, is yeah. that he won't shoot. It's not that he can't shoot. It's that he won't, won't shoot. shoot. He's so ask. much of a fucking coward that teams defend him accordingly, and it completely destroys the whole team. The team goes off the rails because of that. Again, I want to bring up Nick Claxton. Nick Claxton, amazing season he's having in Brooklyn. Before Kevin Durant was traded, after Kevin Durant was traded, Nick Claxton's been very good, one of the best switch-heavy defenders in the league. The second that you put Ben Simmons on the floor next to him, which, again, Ben is supposed to be one of the best switch defenders in the league. The yeah, Nets ben, went in the tank. The Nets went absolutely in the tank. Yeah. So, like, ben, Ben's trash now. I agree with it. Ben's career is over. I agree with, with that. I'd be curious to see how Jokic would develop if you put him on a team with Embiid and you had those two. I'd just be curious to see. Like, well, I, he's I a center. You would never put the two together. He's basically a center. I get your. I know he can't defend like a center, but I'm saying in terms of how he has to play on offense, it's a similar thing to Jokic. So anyway, that's what I've been fighting with people on Twitter about this week. So that's well, what I hope I'm, they keep yelling at you for having. Well, don't worry, you. Kyle. They they always yell at me, no matter what. All right, here would be here would be my next question for you. How many players in the NBA do you think you can put on an NCAA team? And they would lead that team to the to win the March Madness tournament. Like how three many guys? Of them. What? At, at least three quarters of them. 
Well, I'm saying just one of them. So like Embiid right now would win the tournament, right? Like he's that good. He's unstoppable. Like he would win the tournament. So I think Embiid, Luca, I think Kyrie has a good argument, like just because of what he can I'm do. I'm saying like three quarters of the league. Okay. I'm, I'm not, I, I think people underestimate what the gap is between. But just one of them. NBA again. play. I, I get okay. it. Okay. All right. I'm just making sure. All right. Like think about. Steph Curry as a like 20 year old or whatever on a bullshit team almost going all the way in a tournament and that is with nobody around him and that's with Steph nowhere near where he was as a player now most guys who are in the NBA get so much like if you drop Tyrese Maxey into the the NCAA tournament right now is he not scoring like 25 a game easily in like a low amount of minutes like 35. Well, he's just not going to shoot that much. Like that's just right. not how it also, it really depends on, do you, does the coach allow that player to just have kind of carte blanche? Because if they have to be in this fucking stupid, archaic swing the ball <laughs> side to side type setup, and they're not running pick and rolls and they're not doing whatever, like then that's a different story. But most of the league walks in and they're at least going to a final four with a bunch of, you know, scrubs and losers basically like you could put Joel Embiid on like fairly Dickinson or whoever beat uh (laughs) Purdue the other night and they're going to the they're going to the title that's well it's funny because I feel like Purdue is just kind of what Jokic's team would be in the playoffs right like a big Ophi center in the middle that got upset in the first round like I guess the uh the other caveat is that college officials are trash so maybe the officiating is so bad that they neutralize the advantage of having a great player but yeah, like the gap between college players and NBA players is so significant that it's it's so most the, of the league. On the Sixers, we think Embiid could do it. I'm going to assume you're including Harden in this. Embiid, Harden, Maxi, Tobias. Oh, so you think Toby? Uh, that was going to be my cutoff. You think Toby could do it? I mean, I I go so far as to say I think Shake Milton could do it. Like I oh, I don't think that. I'm yeah. not like. <laughs> I'm not afraid of this at all. Like I watch college basketball and these guys suck. Like I, I, I I watch no more than like 20 minutes of the tournament this weekend. And I don't, I'm not doing it to like rain on people's parades. I'm I don't go on Twitter and be like, this product is awful. If people have fun with it, people have fun with it. But I just like, unless I'm watching it for prospects, which because the Sixers don't have a pick this year, I don't really need to. Mm -hmm. Um, there's just no reason for me to watch college basketball. I'll watch it again next year when they have a pick and I'll scout guys and what have you, but it's just a waste of time. Well, I saw a stat uh, that teams are shooting something like 30% from three in the tournament and they're, and the three point line is even closer too. So I agree. It's been a painful watch, but the games that I have watched, those are things I've been thinking of who on the NBA could do it. I see producer James is uh, chiming in. He says every NBA player, I, <laughs> I'd be curious to see Jokic. I would just be curious to see like what would happen. Oh, so, come on, man. Jokic would destroy the NCAA tournament. Uh, it would be the most painful watch on the face of the planet. Just like barely jumping by the rim. It would just, yeah, I couldn't do it. But all right. So I got my two Jokic hypotheticals out. Um, anything else? Anything else you want to touch on? I know you had a uh, a busy weekend. So no, nah, yeah, we had the uh, the St. Patrick's Day wedding on Friday night. So that was yeah, that must have been a a time and a half. I would think a wedding combined with St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, honestly, I was proud of myself for how not hungover I was on Saturday nice. morning. That was a uh, 
against all odds. I felt very good. I hydrated well as I uh, rotated I've, through my usual cocktails at a wedding. So that was nice. I've gotten to the point. Well, first of all, I'll say this. I think an old fashioned is the ultimate drink in general, but definitely a wedding. Like an old fashioned, if I was advising somebody, if you're listening to this pod, obviously don't drink until you're 21. But when you do, and you're in settings where you have to have a drink, I think an old fashioned is the ultimate drink to order in those settings. Like it's delicious, it's like classy. I think it looks cool when you hold it. I think it's the <laughs> ultimate one. But I also think I've gotten to a point where like, uh, so I went out on Saturday and it was fun. I had a great time. But I've almost gotten to the point where when I'm going out, I like dread the fact that I know my Sunday is just going to be like disgusting this, like ordering food because I feel gross, like tired. Like that's how I know I'm getting old when I'm dreading it before I even go out. That's why I don't get how people are like who are in like the business or finance world or constantly going yeah. to like happy hours. And yeah. then it's just like, hey, you're up at 6 a.m. the next day going right back to work. It's like. I, I don't know how you do it. You got to just be absolutely miserable most of the well, time. I feel like maybe I'm going to get to a point where I just drink mocktails just because like if I'm in a business setting where at least you're holding something that looks like you're drinking, you can trick people into thinking you are. But to your point, and now our profession doesn't really require this, but if you're going to three or four, <clears throat> excuse me, happy hours a week, I do not see how you're a not being gross the next day. Like, how do you ever stay in shape? Like if I drink one or two like days in a row, it feels like I, my body, like, you know, swells up like 15 pounds just off of doing <laughs> that. Like I wake up uh, and I'm like, why, why do I even bother working out this week? On the old fashioned point, by the way, that is what I was drinking at my own wedding. Um, yes. But my normal wedding drink is a whiskey ginger. That's my, uh, my go-to. <sighs> I just, I grew up not drinking soda and I, I know like ginger ale isn't like a, you know, a super type of soda, but yeah. I just kind of think like you're just, I'd rather just do almost whiskey, not water, but it just adds so much sugar to it. Oh, James says he drinks a nice Washington apple. That's, so I don't know that's what that really, is. I don't think I've had one since I was like 20 years old. So that's a, that's is a that like a back. flavored whiskey? I forget what's uh, what's in it. Maybe so, James can elaborate for us. I remember I went through a phase where I was really into like um, ciders. And then I immediately like one day just switched where I was like, this is the sweetest drink in the world. I'll never have another one. And I don't think I've had another one for like, I don't know, three or four years or something. Okay. Like that. James says it's whiskey ginger ale topped with cranberry juice. That's interesting. Okay. So I'd be into that because I think the cranberry juice adds to it. But the, the I whiskey just, ginger I think Whiskey ginger is good in that I think old fashions, if you're trying to also go for speed with like your time at the bar at a wedding, yeah. an old fashioned can take a bit with like the muddling and you got to get it the does. bitters and all that. So that's why I stick to whiskey ginger. It's a, a nice quick one, two ingredients and you're out and it, it's it's refreshing. It's not overwhelming. It's uh, it's nice. Well, the other downside to the old fashioned is you end up tweeting that Ben Simmons is just like Jokic. And the next thing you know, you're defending it on a pod. So as they say, lots of risks with drinking, one of which is takes. So, um, all right, we will wrap this one up. As we uh, said at the beginning of the pod, obviously they have the Bulls back to back, big games uh, this weekend. We'll be back, I think, before those Friday, Saturday games for sure. Um, to talk about hopefully 2-0 against the Bulls. I think they're going to do it. Um, just feels like they're playing well. So that'd be my prediction for the next two. But uh, until then, Kyle, I will talk to you uh, next time. No more whiskey gingers until the next time. No, God, no. no. <laughs>